I'm quite interested in gardening, actually. That's uh, <laughs> That would be my non kind of mountain love, actually. Uh, I got an allotment in lockdown. so Fantastic. Uh, but gar- gardens are never finished, surely. There is no, no end point to that. Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's why they were super interested yeah. on the subject, because it's just constantly ongoing. And they had lots of interesting things to say about even after one person stops being the gardener for a certain garden, it gets passed on to yeah. someone else and it's always changing. Um, I'll have to listen to those ones. Yeah, I'm really interested in that, actually. Hello, my name's Emily Anderson and this is Unfinishing, the podcast about things that are incomplete, abandoned or not public. My guest this week is Rebecca Coles, who is a mountaineer. She specialises in remote expeditions and has made first ascents in Nepal and South Georgia in Antarctica. She's led expeditions on all seven continents and is also a winter mountaineering and climbing instructor and an international mountain leader. She has a PhD in glacial geomorphology. Becky's unfinished project is to climb all 82 of the 4,000 metre alpine peaks with an all-female team. And, on top of that, she's also an incredibly warm, friendly and self-effacing person. We talked about the great number of different things that have to come together to make Becky's alpine adventure happen, about how women often climb with men more for the sake of convenience than anything else, about trying to get to sleep the night before attempting a summit, and about why Becky enjoys training members of the military. Becky also tells me about how she motivated a judge with no walking experience to complete an ascent of Kilimanjaro, about what it feels like on a first ascent expedition when you don't quite make it to the top, and about why looking negatively at unfinished things is a dinner party problem rather than a personal one. Before we started recording, Becky casually mentioned that she's going away soon, and when I asked her about that after we'd finished the official interview, it turned out that what she meant by that was that she's leading a 280km camel-supported desert trek in Sudan. So you can also hear about that at the end of this episode. There are links in the show notes to Becky's Instagram and also to an article that we mention in the interview that she published in Sidetracked magazine. There's also a link there to Rob Johnson's work, who's a filmmaker who we talk about, and also to the UIAA, which Becky mentions a couple of times, and that stands for the International Climbing and Mountaineering Federation. All it remains for me to say is that if you have an unfinished, abandoned or private project that you'd like to talk about, you can contact me via email on unfinishing.pod at gmail.com and you can follow me on my new Instagram account which is at unfinishingpod to get the latest episodes. So we first got in touch with each other on Twitter like many of my best (laughs) interviewees and you wrote to me that climbing all the alpine 4000 meter peaks is still unfinished for me but if I get to climbing all but one, like Barbara Swindon, I'll probably be pretty happy. Yeah. So I have to start off by asking you about how you came to set yourself that goal in the first place. Um, I always like exploring new places. Mm. So I think a list of some sort is, is quite a good way of going to places that you wouldn't normally have thought about going to try and complete that list. So I came about 
thinking about wanting to explore the Alps more and go to places I hadn't been to in the Alps before. So the Alpine 4,000 metre list, of which there are actually several lists. So, um, but one of those lists would would be a, a good way a good way of exploring. And then, as I just did a bit more research, I realised that actually they the 4,000 metre peaks, any list over any amount of time hasn't been climbed by an all-female team before. And so then there was kind of that opportunity arose, I guess. And could you tell me a little bit about Barbara Swindon, who you mentioned there as well? Yeah, so she's uh, she wrote a book. She climbed in the sort of 70s and 80s. She's quite interesting and something I quite admire is people that do these sort of mountaineering challenges who actually have kind of very normal jobs and not necessarily working as guides or anything in the mountains. So she was a teacher and then in her school holidays would go alpine climbing. And she didn't start by setting out to climb all the 4,000ers, but over time she realised, oh, actually maybe maybe it is achievable. And uh, no woman at that time had climbed the 52, the list of 52 peaks. Yeah, she, in her school holidays, um, would would go off and climb with her climbing club and her husband. I find it really interesting that she sort of nearly climbed up them all. There was one left and then she got a back injury and couldn't continue. Oh, um, and that the actually... We can be very binary in climbing a mountaineering thing. Mm. We can be, you reach a summit or you don't reach a summit. You complete the list of peaks or you don't. And actually, I'm much more interested in the journey rather than the destination. So it doesn't get such big a claim or anything. <laughs> but those experiences that you gather on, on, the, on the journey um, and doing something slowly as well over time, that quite appeals rather than doing it kind of in one big push. So this is interesting to me, obviously, what you said there about having in climbing perhaps quite a binary attitude to whether things are successes and completed. Mm. And you've obviously made a number of fantastic first ascents in South Georgia, Antarctica, Nepal, and you've also been on first ascent expeditions that didn't succeed, at least in the sense that you didn't get to the summit. <laughs> I'm obviously interested in those ones for this podcast. And you've already talked about the journey being important rather than necessarily finishing. Could you tell me a little bit more maybe about those ascents that you haven't completed and how you look back on them now? Yeah, well, one particularly comes to mind because I've actually been there to try and climb it twice and it's in a very remote place it's in eastern Mm. Tajikistan so that's super remote really difficult to get to and time consuming and relatively expensive and yeah I've been there twice and we haven't got to the summit but I've had a fantastic trip each time Mm. and learned loads about the area that I didn't know much about before and about myself and about climbing and actually I still think it we got pretty close to the summit the second time and people have gone to try and climb it subsequently but it as far as I know it still remains unclimbed and the people that I know that have gone back to try and climb it they haven't even got 
got into a base camp, some of them, because of the logistics and the remoteness of, of the place. So actually, it was just quite an achievement to get to a base camp, yeah. to be honest. So A, I've got really good memories of going on those trips. And then secondly, yeah, I think it was quite an achievement to get onto the summit mm. ridge. I still think, oh, maybe, you know, the learnings from those two times, I could go back and actually maybe be successful on a third time. (laughs) (laughs) Depends whether the time and the money is kind of worth going back again for me. Sure. And talk me through, I mean, this is a question that kind of has an obvious answer in one sense, in the sense that what you're trying to do is incredibly hard. But So you mentioned, for example, that Barbara Swindon didn't complete all of the Alps that she wanted to because she had a back injury. Talk me through the kind of Mm. barriers that you face to completing these enormous summits. Yeah, so um, with reference to the 4,000 metre peaks in the Alps, I guess I am trying the list of 82 Mm. peaks. As I said, there's several different lists. And I mean, that's a huge amount of peaks and routes and conditions to all align and and knowledge there I mean initially it was absolutely overwhelming the kind of all the different permutations of routes and conditions trying to process that information to have kind of success on on such a big project like that I'm not an alpine guide I'm a mountaineering instructor but I don't work on alpine peaks and a lot of these peaks for me were were new to me and new to the people I was climbing with as well so we were on sighting right. as such um, and we didn't have prior knowledge of the of the routes so yeah that's that's a lot of information mm. to take on board and to make sure that you've got things in order that you tackle those routes under the the right conditions um, and processing all the weather information and and other logistical stuff like lifts and huts Mm. and how to get there and that sort of thing so yeah there's that information overwhelm for sure and then getting those after you've processed all that information it's getting those stars to align with conditions and and weather Mm. you know the warm summers we've had in the Alps more recently have meant that some routes just haven't been haven't been in in yeah. condition, and yeah, I'm I'm working and just having short shorter periods now to go and do complete them. So it's kind of getting that weather window correct for the season to to climb the routes that we have left and making sure that we're acclimatized before going to to tackle them as well so oh and and then climbing partners um I'm trying to do this as all female team we did a, a lot in 2019 with Lou and Mo and now there's different climbing partners Katie I climbed with this summer and Tanya but actually there's not a huge amount of women climbing at that level in the Alps that I can team up with and that want have the same goals and that have the same aspirations as well. So so that that can be quite tricky. Actually I've got loads of male climbing partners who I climb with regularly, but finding female climbing partners is is definitely a challenge into into the mix as well. <laughs> and why was it important to you 
to take on these challenges with female teams? Several reasons, I think. To expand my own kind of climbing experience, I have mainly climbed, as, as many women do, mainly climbed with my partner, who's also a mountaineering instructor. And I think guys like, like to think that they, you know, they give their um, <laughs> female partners, uh, you know, confidence in climbing. But to be honest, it's just convenience. <laughs> you can sit down at the dinner table and be like, oh, do you, you know, should we put like going to the Alps for a few weeks in the summer in the diary? And, and yeah, it, yeah, it's just convenience and easy to do to climb with you. <laughs> And I thought it would kind of expand my climbing experience to climb with women. Mm. And I was interested in that. Also, it hadn't been done as an all-women's team mm. team before, which I found incredible. I was in disbelief because there are a lot of um, strong female alpinists, you know, across across Europe, across a lot of the alpine nations. So it's incredible that it hasn't been done and so there was an opportunity there and and with opportunities like that and first like that as I've discovered there is sometimes funding <laughs> to be yeah. found then which actually is is really important for me in succeeding with this so I'm really glad to have had some sponsors like Montaigne helping me with the funding towards this because it's uh, yeah it's quite expensive sure. um, <laughs> climbing in the Alps <laughs> And do people treat you as an ambassador for women in the outdoors? And then as a secondary question, does that get annoying? Would you prefer to just be able to speak to people like me as a mountaineer rather than as a female mountaineer? Um, I don't necessarily find it annoying. I, I wouldn't describe it as annoying. I, I find it sometimes a bit uncomfortable yeah. <laughs> and a bit strange because I don't necessarily think yeah, I'm doing anything particularly incredible. I don't. I guess I don't climb grade wise to a really high level. So, mm. and climbing can be often about the grade. So yeah, so it's like I just find it <laughs> a bit strange. One thing that does, yeah, one thing that does uh, not annoy me, but I think is asking the wrong person is I often get asked or you know you've gone on to alpine climbing you're a winter mountaineering and climbing instructor Mm. there aren't many women doing that how can we you know what are your suggestions how can we get more women doing that well I'm not the person to ask really because I've you know the system has suited me to a certain degree that I've managed to succeed doing doing these things and actually we should be finding the women that were put off or didn't progress and find the reasons why they didn't they're the people we Mm. need to ask uh, not the the people that have kind of succeeded and the system has suited for whatever reason sure Um, yeah but I'm also happy to be you know I think it's important role models are important there's certain role models I've had over time so I feel that I should also help people where I where I can as well and and that role models are important and if I just by going out and climbing if that that helps someone then that yeah I'm happy to do that. (laughs) Sure and I think this brings us slightly to the work that you do on mountaineering instruction 
as well mm. because you work with as I understand it you work with young people for example on Duke of Edinburgh programs you work as a rock climbing instructor and expedition leader you teach courses like the Mountain Leader Awards and you've also worked with the military mm. could you tell me a little bit about that wider work that you do with younger people or with the military in particular? Yeah so I'm really lucky I work with really diverse groups of people and that's what makes my job super interesting. I think role modelling wise I'm also really keen that I can be a role model for men as well Mm. in respect to showing actually what women are able to do because unless we get men to understand that women Mm. are perfectly technically and physically able to to do stuff in the mountains then that will deny opportunities that men are able to to give to people and so that's really important and sometimes I get asked to do talks for schools and I've had people Mm. say yeah we'll get all the girls together and they can listen to your talk and I always say no it's really important that the boys are there too that the boys hear what what women and girls are capable of doing so that that's uh super important to me and yeah, working with the military is uh, is actually it's really good fun working with soldiers. Actually, they're often really physically capable, and um, they learn skills, practical skills, really quickly. So it's really nice as an instructor to be able to teach people an art or teach people to do something and get them to pick it up. For, you know, they pick it up immediately, yeah. and then you can move on to the next skill. So the progression can be really quick, which is yeah is enjoyable and a lot of our job with the military the military don't really care if they can climb or tie Mm. knot or whatever what they want is the transferable skills for their jobs so uh, we do quite a lot of leadership teamwork and uh, resilience type training with them as well um, reviewing what we've done each day and relating Mm. it back to their jobs so that's quite an interesting part of, of working with the military that side of things. That's really interesting because one of the things that I did want to ask you about was to what extent the training you offer is psychological training, as it were, rather than the practical skills that you mentioned as well. And you mentioned there that maybe the leadership or the psychological resilience side of things is very transferable. Do you think that would also be transferable to people in non-military jobs, for example? Yeah, uh Definitely. Um, I mean, the military have been using adventure training as a tool for this for for a long time. And when I work uh, with civilians, (laughs) they often they don't realise at the time that they'll need a certain skill to get through an expedition or to improve that they're climbing. Um, So I'm often coaching them through that how to control fear for example so Mm. that they can climb to their full potential or how they can build a bit of mental resilience for a long expedition Mm. and they won't know beforehand that that's a skill that they're going to learn on on the course or uh, on an expedition they might not realize that they're going to have to um, learn that sort of resilience but it's kind of that that coaching them through it and for most of those things it's my job to get them through the expedition or improve their climbing Mm. and whether they reflect on that to use in their kind of 
work and personal life afterwards. I don't, I, you know, is, is up to them whether they sure. they choose to do that. Um, but I, you know, I'm a great believer that it, it can be um, extremely useful in in personal life as well. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I've used. For example, I had a really nice guy come on a Kilimanjaro trip. So not not technical, but you know you need a bit of resilience to and toughness mm-hmm. to um, camp every day and, and and trek every day. And the summer day isn't isn't an easy day at all. Mm. And I remember looking at his experience form, and it was completely blank. And I was like, <laughs> oh, you know, well, you not filled out anything here and he's like oh no I have no experience I was like you've not done any walking in the UK before or anything like that he's like no I've not done anything like that I was like, okay you know fine um and then he came to me uh a few days into the trip and said I am really worried about this now <laughs> um and, uh, and he was actually a he was a judge he seemed quite young to me for yeah. for being a, a, a judge so he I said look you know you must have gone through some really tough kind of exams and training to get where you've got to in your professional life and you must have you know had late nights and just had to keep pushing through it's the same on Kilimanjaro it'll it's just one foot in front of the other keep pushing on and and you'll get there you know and he said that was really useful he could then use his work life Mm. to to get to the summit of Kilimanjaro um, and that experience through kind of professionally having to really push himself and um, yeah and he got to the summit so that's good (laughs) (laughs) well that's a happy ending (laughs) yeah and for you personally would you say that when you are trying to complete these expeditions Mm. Do you find the psychological element harder or more of a challenge than the physical element? Or would you say it's normally the other way around? Me, it depends which side of the psychological element. So I think I've discovered mostly with a comparison to other people on a trip that I I am very comfortable in quite remote environments and Mm -hmm. coping with risk in very remote areas. And like, I guess, many people, you just think that's normal, the way you're coping and that everyone will cope like that. But then you realise that maybe other people in the team are suddenly overwhelmed or feeling very anxious about the fact that they are so far from help if something happens. And um, and that they're very uncomfortable in that situation. So I think I deal with that quite well I can still you know be very analytical about risk and how much risk I want to take given Mm. the remoteness and the consequence of anything happen but I am not uh, freaked out by that Um, Mm. so that side of things I'm quite comfortable with and physically you're always pushing yourself quite hard physically and so Mm. it depends on the stage of the expedition and sometimes you might be under the weather or unwell or um, or just having a low energy day and it can feel like a really tough day and then from experience now I know that I could have a low energy day on a day I didn't expect to be physically tough yeah and then I'm now not worried 
about a day later on in the expedition that I anticipate, oh, that is going to be a really physically tough day. I've anticipated Mm. that. And I have an unexpectedly physically tough day beforehand. I now know actually my energy levels could be up later on. And actually that perceived physically tough day might not be as hard as I anticipated that's learned from experience I know from experience maybe the night before a summit day Mm. I won't even if I go to bed obviously you're getting up early um, that sort of day but even if I go to bed early I might not sleep at all because you know there's a bit of adrenaline a bit of anxious energy and I used to really worry that I should be sleeping you know not many hours to to sleep I'd then be worrying about not sleeping but I now know that actually if I'm just resting and relaxing and even if I don't feel like I've slept, so I'll have mm. enough um, reserves to get through the, the next day and it'll be okay. So even if I don't sleep, I'm not going to be worrying about not sleeping, for example. To, to finish on psychological or physical I'm my brain's quite analytical and I'll be Mm. thinking like quite quickly that's safe that's not safe I need to do this I need to do that and analyzing risk yeah uh, and taking the emotion out of it I I think I'm pretty good at that so psychologically I cope pretty well with um, remote environments or hazards dealing with hazards in in Mm. the mountains Um, so it, it is the physical challenge for me but reducing the mountains to a physical challenge it's also a much more to do with putting all the pieces of a puzzle together to combine the route conditions your skill the Mm. weather your route finding and technical ability on a route rather than just pure physicality and I guess that's what I enjoy about climbing is it puts a lot of elements together. You described the night before a summit day and not being able to sleep and that was really evocative (laughs) and I imagine that that's even more intense if you are on a first ascent so I just want to return to the topic of Mm. first ascent because Mm. as I say you have done several which is really impressive. I I read a piece that you wrote for Sidetrack magazine about climbing is it Lassa Mula is that how you say it? Lassa Mula. Lassa Mula in Nepal thank you. Yeah and the emphasis in that article entirely understandably is being on the first to climb it so the last line in the piece is you talking about feeling very privileged that you were on top of this mountain looking at a view that no one else has seen before. Hmm. Could you describe that feeling for us and why that's so motivating for you? I think it's the exploration that interests Mm. me the most with first ascents and going to really um, outweigh corners of the world and not knowing what you're going to experience and so many unknowns, not knowing whether, you know, you can either get to the mountain a really big challenge is getting on the mountain with glacial retreat and that sort of thing it it does make it quite tricky to get even onto the mountain anymore so there yeah there's loads of unknowns there and I think that that's quite exciting and Mm. the the exploration the exploration side of things 
Um, yeah, I like going to try and do things that aren't aren't certain. So you don't, mm. and that was the thing, thing, and still is the thing with the, the climbing the four thousand meter peaks. Is mm. I, I don't know whether I can do that. <laughs> um, I don't know whether I'll get the weather and conditions. I don't know whether I'm technically able enough to do some of the really yeah. the harder the harder ones. So yeah, that's that interests me and inspires me to to, to go and climb these things. <laughs> yeah, so returning to those four thousand meter peaks, one question actually that I did want to ask you is you've mentioned a couple of times that there were different lists of what counts in that group of mountains. Did you say that there was 82 on the list that you were trying to do? Yeah, yeah. So um there's two major lists. There's the 52 list, which is the, the main peaks, and that's mm. what Barbara Swindon was doing. But um, more recent, a more recent list, uh, the UIAA brought out, which is 82 peaks. Okay. And that not only takes into account the prominence, because it, it's rather than about height. Height's kind of easy to work out. It's the the prominence of the peak from other peaks around it that is where the definition kind of gets tricky sometimes. The UIAA list takes into account not only prominence, but also like really worthy climbing objectives. Mm. So if you take one route, the Aguida Diabla, which is on the sort of Mont Blanc Massif, that has five pinnacles on it. All mm-hmm. the all the pinnacles are over four thousand, and there's not that bigger up and down between these. There's not much prominence, but it's kind of a really worthy climbing objective to climb mm-hmm. all these pinnacles. And there's five of them, and then you end up on a sixth peak, which is Mont Blanc de Tacal, which is uh, one of the main main peaks. So yeah, and it's kind of a more modern list. Mm. Uh, only two Brits have completed it, both guys. So that was was a appeal to us to to do that list. So I've climbed sixty one. Um, peaks That's pretty that good list. going. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's the majority done. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, and then this summer I it was I completed something in this summer. So that. <laughs> Um, and that was uh, all the Swiss four thousand meter peaks, of which Fantastic. there are forty eight on the on the on the UIA list. Yeah. Yeah. And this is probably a really hard question, but mm. of the ones you climbed so far, do you have any favourites? Yeah, I mean, there were so many great days out. Some of them were the more technically challenging ones um, mm. that we discovered that we were, you know. <laughs> we we were able to do and we were you know we built up our experience um together and we were able to climb yeah some more technically one technical ones like the the shrek horn and traversing then onto the lateral horn that's a really big day and that was really satisfying to complete amazing climbing and amazing positions the aguida diabla was also with these five pinnacles was also a real highlight and and, and one of the more technical ones. But then there were some that um, we didn't, I guess I didn't expect to be really nice climbing or really uh, scenic. So the Dante de Heron was one of those. It's just a lovely walk in up an alpine valley, a mm. lovely sort of little hut 
and then nice climbing and then you pop out on the peak and you're climbing away and then you pop out on the top and it just feels like the Matterhorn is you know just right basically in your face and it's just almost you don't see the Matterhorn until you've summited and and it's just suddenly there um so really amazing positions and views Mm. and, and so that was I didn't know much about that peak beforehand and I wasn't expecting that and thinking about those different qualities to the different days and different mountains that you have climbed do you think of the mountains that you've been up as almost having different characters I was struck in the article that you wrote for Sidetracked magazine about one of your first ascents that you described you personified the mountain quite a lot and I, I was really intrigued by that and how you relate to the mountain do you relate to them as having personalities almost actually I don't think I do. <laughs> I think I was, I was getting very, but not on a day-to-day climbing side of things. Yeah. Maybe when I reflect back on my experience, I might reflect back and think of it uh, in some sort of way. But when I'm actually tackling a climb, I think I actually do like to think of the mountain as it's a lump of rock mm. and some ice and some snow it doesn't discriminate it doesn't treat you any different from who you are and in a way I guess I actually quite like that in a sense because it is very male dominated especially the winter climbing the alpine climbing and my Mm. job and colleagues is quite male dominated so and sometimes you sense that there's a bit of being treated differently so in the mountains and knowing that the mountain isn't going to treat you any differently Mm. I think that I find quite quite a nice place to be. And you have a PhD as well in glacial geomorphology who do you give us a brief summary maybe of what that means and how it relates to your work on the mountains? So glacial geomorphology is the shape of the landscape that's left behind after the ice has gone Mm. so that's quite prevalent in the UK and we have lots of landforms that have been created by the ice and over various Mm. ice ages so what the landform that I was particularly looking at was u-shaped valleys so the the cross-sectional shape of of the valleys I was looking at actually valleys all, all over the world really and looking at the size and shape of the valley, depending on the different environments that Mm. they were in, and seeing if we could tell anything from from those evolution of the valleys and how how they would change with time and uh, environments, like amount of how dry the, or how much precipitation, Mm. and the rock, the geology as well, came to that. And just like climbing enormous mountains, PhDs can be quite difficult things to finish. <laughs> yeah, <very difficult. laughs> yeah. Did you find yourself drawing on your resilience from mountaineering to help with finishing the research or, or vice versa for that matter? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it was tough to finish. Um, <laughs> I think I have a tendency of doing lots of things all at once. So mm. as well as doing my PhD, I was doing my winter mountain leader. I completed that whilst doing my PhD and starting on my uh, mountaineering and climbing instruction. Right. 
and then being kind of distracted a lot by climbing. So uh, okay. yeah, my PhD took quite a while as well. And I, I think at a certain point when you're so close to finishing something, you just have to tell yourself, right, one goal this year, and that is, is to, mm. to finish writing this up. Try and cut down on the <laughs> distractions. And I, I I don't always set myself really clear goals or anything, but I do remember that year being like, no, this is a year <laughs> of finishing stuff and finishing my PhD because otherwise this is going to go on forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's quite it was quite tough. I'm very good at coming up with ideas and starting things less good at finishing things (laughs) yeah sure and but do you feel okay about the stuff that you haven't finished I feel as though you you said a little bit earlier that you do see value definitely in the expeditions that you didn't finish does that apply to other unfinished things in your life as well yeah I think so it is always it's like the cherry on the cake isn't it to to be able Mm. to finish something and there's also a a work career side of things if you can finish stuff and I'm very fortunate to have some sponsors for my climbing and Mm. I'm sure that they would like me to finish some stuff (laughs) Um, uh, Montaigne have very generously supported me for the Alpine 4000 meter peaks so and we've got some film footage and I was just speaking to the filmmaker as well because he's invested in it in the time that he's put in it and we're deciding what to do with this footage that's just sitting there I think he's going to bring out little uh, little bits over time and wait for me to finish <laughs> so tell me about that process what does that involve uh oh yeah so I mean he is he's a friend he's another mountaineering climbing instructor that's branched into filmmaking he's he's really talented at that and it's called Rob Johnson and he specializes in drone footage as well and he's got a business called Film Up High uh yeah so he 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 does kind of commercial stuff now mm. um but he when he heard about what we were doing he contacted us because he also has kind of projects that he does kind of for his own in you know this doesn't have much commercial use for him but it does help him with his filmmaking and he could maybe put it into film festivals like Kendall and that raises his profile and that sort of thing so we've been working together on that. Sounds fantastic that sounds really good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Did you say that you're going away soon? Yes so um I don't know, just over a week. I'm going to Sudan um, oh, wow. to lead a, a desert trekking expedition. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it, actually. I'm quite excited about it. Um, now I have to ask you about that as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what's the plan for that? Uh, so it's a desert trek across the Bayuda Desert, which there's a big kink in the Nile. So we're going from one bit of the kink to the mm. other bit of the kink. Um uh camel supported so it's a commercial trip with a i'm working for a company and it's with a with a team i've done a yeah i really like deserts actually and they'd be second to mountains um so i've done a a desert trek in iran they specialize in going to more out the way places uh yeah i've done one in iran for them before on the loot desert that was really great trip so yeah i've actually yeah because i'd gone to lots of places like Afghanistan and that sort of thing of my own accord (laughs) in the past and with my outdoor background Mm. 
I, I rung them up as a keen, you know, keen to work for them expedition leader, which I think they must get all the time, everyone ringing them up saying, oh, I'd like to work for you. Yeah. So so I did that and they, you could hear them like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we get this all the time sort of, but politely listening. And then I could say to them, look, I've been to a lot of places that you actually go to like Afghanistan and uh, they were saying yeah they, they sort of employed me on the spot then bless them so um <laughs> they said but I've not been to Sudan before so and I've worked for them for yeah. five years or so but obviously pandemic intervened yeah but I've not been to Sudan before so I, I'm looking forward to to going there lots of pyramids like more pyramids than Egypt in Sudan so oh my goodness archaeologically interesting and actually yeah. I was just reading the team list and there's an archaeologist in our team so we'll have a local team to help us mm. understand the history but also yeah I'm no archaeologist so yeah so yeah it should be a fascinating trip it's 280 kilometer trek and then through the desert and then we'll do some sightseeing as we go back to Khartoum seeing various pyramids and archaeological sites so yeah fascinating I'm really excited about it actually and what have you learned talking to so many people about unfinished things what what's the standout thing I think the standout thing is probably that initially people think of unfinished stuff they haven't finished as being less valuable than a finished thing but then as mm. soon as you actually ask them about it and get them to think about it they actually come up with loads of stuff what loads of reasons why it's valuable and loads of mm. stuff that they've got out of it so I think yeah the major thing is that actually seeing unfinished stuff as just as valuable as things that you've completed mm. and it's almost not entirely but sometimes it's almost like an arbitrary thing to finish something and actually there's just a huge amount of important stuff that people do that it almost gets waved away as unimportant yeah it's not completed well I think it's about society isn't it you gain so much from that journey Mm. that finishing it could just be only a tiny bit more gain to your personal journey could just be one step further I guess that would be the analogy on the mountain but you've taken hundred thousand steps to to get there and there's one more step and that's the unfinished thing yeah so it's only going to give you that tiny percentage more learning it's just society and you sitting down at a kind of a dinner party and saying whether you got to the top or not exactly yeah and you can't say that you got to the top because you didn't take that one extra step so yeah it's more societal you get those out of it. Yeah, it's a really <laughs> cool concept, I think. Of the, the Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I will, I'm going to download a load then for Sudan. <laughs> yeah, listen to a load, especially the gardening ones, particularly interesting. I really liked what Becky was saying towards the end of the interview there about taking the final step as almost being an arbitrary thing. And I loved hearing her stories about her experiences in the mountains. 
I do think that even if you're not doing anything on the same level as she is, that you can still take inspiration from her approach. So, for example, over the next couple of months, I've got some final tweaks to make on a book before it gets published. It's been a long road to get there, so I am somewhat struggling for motivation, but I'm going to keep Becky's words in mind about just putting one foot in front of the other. So thank you very much to Becky for that and for giving me so much of her time. And I should also say thank you to her for being extremely patient when we were struggling to get her onto our call. There's a tale there of a broken laptop, an unsupported platform and an emergency switch in recording method. And thank you to you as well for listening. If you're interested in more interviews with people in the outdoor world, I've also recently done episodes with the climbers Franco Cookson and Anna Fleming. And there's a whole special episode where I took unfinishing to Kendall Mountain Festival. I hope your week is going well, whatever you're up to, and I'll be back again soon.